0: this is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a colleague. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would
1: just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. He had set loose out of the various cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up.
0: Do your own numbers. Do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to I don't care if it's if it's uh, a
1: killing, uh, whatever. You just don't see it.
2: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the men and women that serve behind the walls of the Old Idaho State Penitentiary. My name is Anthony, and I'm joined in the studio here with Sky. Hello. And today we've got some some pretty good stories for mm-hmm. you. Uh, mine is a little graphic; it's a little violent, so listener discretion—that of course is always mm-hmm. advised, but mm-hmm. particularly for my section.
0: Well, and I, I'll uh, I'll bring us up with a little less gruesome. Uh, we're going to talk about a prohibition violator. So it's it's a crime that is no longer problem anymore. I mean, they're different uh, adjacent problems. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll, I'll kind of come in and hopefully make it less like, ugh.
2: good. We'll see Thank though. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, I, I mean, this is like the,
0: the Josie and the Sam Stevens. My mm-hmm. story isn't quite as fun as Sam Stevens, but I found out some really cool stuff. I'm very excited about it. So yeah. I'll let you start.
2: Just before the podcast, Sky was like, let me just double check one thing and just freaked out. So I'm super excited to hear oh, what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: and. I mean, I ended up writing her entire biography like crazy wrong. Um, So I was very excited to find out how completely wrong I was the first time. But it's because I didn't have access to Ancestry when I first wrote it. So like she has a ton of stuff on Ancestry. I'm very excited. Let's start.
2: (laughs) Okay, so my (gasps) inmate today is Charles Cleveland Sandusky, number 2626. Uh, My sources, of course, is Inmate File, uh, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America ancestry including like the world war one draft card which mm-hmm. you know always mm-hmm. is helpful the colorado state archives and the union's pacific website up.com that'll become clear very yeah, yeah, shortly yeah. so i actually came across charles sandusky in a similar way to william h thomas who you know as previously i mm-hmm. mentioned he carved i i suspect carved right. his initials on the side of two house so last summer, some fourth grade students came through and they always have the best questions about mm-hmm. the most random things. And and they always of...
0: notice stuff that you're like, I yeah. literally have never seen that yeah. before. It's oh my gosh. it's really interesting.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So these, these, this little kid raises and, um, excuse me, what does May t- 1921 CCS mean? And this is in the cement yeah. in front of the territorial prison. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Moving on. Yes. I don't know. I <laughs> yeah, really yeah, don't yeah. know. So, of course, I, I wrote that down. I went back to my office, and just like William H. Thomas, W.H.T., I just started going through the prison index, which mm-hmm. we have available on our website, mm-hmm. so you can check that mm-hmm. out. So I started in, the, in in S's and just went through every name that's, last name that started with an S and came across an inmate named Charles C. Sandusky and went, oh, my gosh, I think I have some pretty good evidence that kind of, proves at a reasonable rate that it was him that wrote this down and we'll get to that
0: and this is what anthony does best by the way like he will take the smallest little thing (laughs) and he will just get the entire story it's really impressive it's really cool what anthony can do
2: i i love it oh my gosh ah I love it. It's my favorite. Researching is my favorite thing it's, to do. It's so.
0: super fun. Yeah. And it's only history nerds like us who get it because everyone else is like, that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. Right. It's not. Yeah,
2: yeah. This part is also I've learned to really like, so like telling people all of this. <laughs> yeah, so Charles is born in St. Joseph, Missouri, and also known as St. Joe, on December 5th, 1884. And St. Joseph is the Northwest. It's up in Northwest Missouri. It's about 30 miles north of Kansas City, Missouri. And during the westward expansion, those heading down the Oregon Trail would would purchase supplies. They would stop in St. Joe and basically stock up on their supplies before they headed west. It's also the birthplace of the Pony Express, the service that delivered mail and newspaper hmm. via horseback between California and Missouri before the invention of the transcontinental telegraph in 1861. Hmm. Uh, it's also where famous outlaw Jesse James, his his gang was involved, and that's where he was shot and killed. Wow. And actually, so that was 1882, two years before Charles is born, okay. and Jesse James was just... He was in his living room and kind of cleaning up a picture, and a, a member of his gang actually pulled a revolver out and Whoa. shot him in the back. Dang. Yeah. And, oh, Marshall Mathers, also known as... Eminem. Yeah. Eminem. Was born in St. Joseph, Missouri oh. as well. So, another connection. I didn't know that. Who is the assumed he was there. from... Michigan, Detroit? He, i was gonna say doesn't he talk about yeah Detroit i think he, he grew up there yeah yeah
0: also unrelated but if we're gonna bring up singers Cher has a song sort of about Jesse James but wow. i actually had a conversation about this yesterday i don't remember who with oh it was with matt and Charlene. i was like <laughs> that's not like they were singing up something about him getting shot in the living room yeah. actually and i was like that's not what her song is about
2: but <laughs> just so everyone knows sky
0: <clears throat> how are you gonna say this
2: has a tattoo of Cher on her arm. She is, you know, a little bit of a fan. Listen,
0: I have liked Cher for fifteen years of my life. I have yes. every album. I'm collecting all of her old albums on vinyl. Everything's fine. Yeah. It's it's anyway, great. Yeah. <clears throat> you'll hear if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm really into old movies. I'm very into share. These things will be brought up constantly throughout yes. the podcast. Yeah. I'm sure. They're anyway, been... <laughs> we are off track. Jesse James from yes. St. Joe, Missouri, killed, killed two
2: years before Charles birth. Yes. So, so Charles born December 1884. His parents were pioneers that that came to Northern Missouri in the 1840s, just before the Great Migration. The Oregon Trail okay. was like. At its
0: They're not early LDS, peak are in they?
2: 1843. Not LDS pioneers. I, I, no, okay. I don't believe so. Yeah. And uh, his parents, they were George Lucas Sadowski and Margaret Maggie Belcher Sadowski. And so his original name is actually S-O-D-O-W-S-K-Y, Sadowski, kind of.
0: Okay, so it's like a Polish. Exactly,
2: yeah. Okay. But it seems like his siblings, he... Charles and his siblings changed their spelling to Sandusky. Um, So Charles had three siblings. He had an older sister named Daisy and two younger brothers named George, who he lists on his intake as his closest living relative, and Floyd, and who he would later name a child of his after. And they are listed as living in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1900. And Charles lists his occupation then. uh, He's about 16, 15, 16 years old as a delivery man. And it's around 1900, 1901, at the age of about 16, 17, that he says he leaves his home. Mm -hmm. So between 1900 and 1910, Charles meets and marries Poet Ann Harris. So Poet Sandusky. And Poet was born in Bolivar, Missouri,
0: sorry her name is poet her
2: name is poet okay it's the I, coolest i that
0: is, it's a, like it's such a, a puritan style name mm-hmm. like how they always used to do like humility and chastity and yeah, all those like yeah. virtue names poet. okay like, yeah. i like it that's kind of fun
2: yeah okay, me too sorry. so uh she's born in, it's in central missouri uh north of springfield and in total charles and poet would have five children together their first were actually a set of twin boys named Floyd and Lloyd in December of 1906.
0: Why, why do people do that?
2: <laughs> they have these two in St. Josephs, Missouri. Then they had Bernice in November of 1909, and Raymond in 1915, and Norma in 1917. I believe that the family moved to Colorado sometime in 1909, where Bernice would, I believe, be born. Okay. Uh, and I only say this because Charles is incarcerated for the first time in the Colorado State Penitentiary in August 1909, and he is charged with robbery, and he's sentenced to 15 years at the penitentiary, and he's given the number 7536. I dug and dug and dug and dug. I could not come across Mm -hmm. what he robbed, what the crime was. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a Sandusky, Ohio, so every search on Library of Congress Went directly to that. So I don't know if his name was misspelled in the newspaper. I tried several Mm. different spellings. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Colorado State Archives have this fantastic overview of the history of the prison of Colorado. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe instead of talking about his crime in Colorado, I'll talk about that. Uh, This volunteer at the Colorado State Archives, this is a shout out to him. His name was Gerald E. Sherrard who created this really cool, comprehensive history of the prison. And Colorado State Penitentiary is such a similar history, mm-hmm. early development mm-hmm. to Idaho's. It was established by their territorial legislator in 1868, just like ours, mm-hmm. and Cannon City. And one cell house was constructed and completed in 1871, just a few months after oh, our what? territorial cool. cell house was completed. Yeah. And it was the the space that they chose was was chosen because of stone that was quarried to construct.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
2: so I, I was just, like, blown <laughs> away by all the similarities here. Their first cell house only had 42 cells, just like ours. Their uh, first prisoners arrived in January of 1871, just about a year before mm-hmm, ours did. Mm-hmm. And uh, Colorado, of course, became a state in 1876, so, mm-hmm, you know, 14 mm-hmm. years before Idaho does. Right. So the prison actually developed much more rapidly than ours did. By 1904, they had four cell houses that could hold 544 men and a separate cell house for women.
0: Mm-hmm. Was it inside the walls? Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And like Idaho, Colorado prisoners were sentenced to hard labor and expected to work. They had jobs in carpentry, blacksmithing, shoe cobbling, tailoring, quarrying, uh, just, just like Idaho. And uh, interestingly... During the time that Charles was there, between 1909 and February 1912, the warden at that time, his name was Thomas J. Tynan, created this really cool program where any inmate that was willing to work was given the opportunity to work at road camps outside the prison walls. And they were completely unguarded. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they were blasting rocks through the Rocky Mountains and creating these these amazing roads through there. Tynan Hmm. reported that instead of sending broken, revengeful men back into the world in no wise reformed but simply trained to greater cunning, there are being restored mended men eager and willing to be made as such use as society will permit. By removing the continual threat of arms, by eliminating oppression and brutalities, by establishing a system of graded rewards for cheerfulness and industry, the penitentiary has given a wholesome, helpful atmosphere. So it's it was this really progressive concept and, mm-hmm. and there were like I think it was a fraction of one percent of the men that went out there that escaped. And wow, so I. That's
0: interesting. Yeah,
2: this this is a really cool system. And Idaho actually did a really similar thing around this time as well. Uh, did it work where, as well? It it did actually. Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's really fascinating. I mean, but it it does kind of. I, I think often when I think of prison, I kind of think of the whole like, do your own number, do your own time. But really, what I mean by that is like, also there's like respect. Given, If there's respect given to these inmates, mm-hmm. then they'll give respect back. Absolutely. And so I, I think that is very it's like a respectful system where it's mm-hmm. we're understanding that you're people. And, yeah, you did this thing and you have to work mm-hmm. to make up to help pay back what you did. Right. But yeah. you are people, you are capable, you're adults and you you're capable of, of I don't want to say taking care of yourself, but mm-hmm. you you can self govern, you know and and so we trust you and that trust then is going to, to yeah reciprocate yeah. and so that's that's really interesting
2: yeah yeah it was uh, such a such a a concept that i think with our prison population i don't know if it it would work if it would translate mm-hmm. today in yeah. a similar way i mean we have work release programs mm-hmm. which are which are great mm-hmm. and that's a that's a great way to resocialize and and Mm -hmm. just just before you enter the you know society Mm -hmm. again like Mm -hmm. 97 percent of of convicts do Mm -hmm. but i do
0: think the nature of of like i don't want to say convicts Mm because i don't think the nature of people has necessarily changed but i think because of the system like Mm -hmm. you think about the rate of recidivism and things like that like the prison life is just different now and so i i mean I, i don't know it's interesting to think about i just don't think it would work yeah. Unfortunately, like yeah. I wish it I wish it would. Yeah, um, Because, again, I, I think humans are much more willing to do what is asked when they mm-hmm. are shown that they are trusted. Yeah. But I mean, that is so hard because I think, you know, people have have become a little bit more manipulative about, uh, you know, getting out or, or, right. you know, saying what they need to say in order to get what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously, I'm not saying that they didn't do that back then. We, we find yeah. plenty of instances of that, but yeah, I wish it would work. That would be
2: really neat. And, you know, and since all the roads have been created, yeah. you know, that <laughs> yeah, we, you we would have to create some sort of equivalent.
0: Yeah. And that would be hard. Yeah. Cause yeah. you know. I mean we have machines do everything these days. Right. So.
2: Yeah, where this was this was literal hard labor and you worked all day and then you went back to your tent camp and you were probably exhausted and Yeah. You know, there's no reason right. to escape because you're just like, well, I'm,
0: Well, and you're not sentenced yeah. to hard labor anymore. Like mm-hmm. can they legally actually make you they can't legally make you necessarily work like that. You like you get paid because they have certain mm-hmm. jobs, like I know that some companies use prisoners to make their clothes Mm -hmm. and things like that and they get paid for it but they can't make them do hard labor anymore can they
2: i don't believe so i think the closest thing would be like prison industries but that Mm -hmm. is you you apply for that sort of position and there's a you know wait list and yeah yeah it's it's a whole different thing we should actually reach out to somebody in prison industries and kind of talk about that
0: yeah
2: future podcast episode (laughs) okay so in 1914 I don't know what happens between 1912 and 1914. If they stayed in Colorado, they went back to Missouri. But in 1914, they moved to Glens Ferry, Idaho. Mm -hmm. And Glens Ferry is a city, it's in like kind of south central Idaho. Mm -hmm. It's in Elmore County. It's adjacent to the Snake River. Mm -hmm. It has one of the most famous and treacherous river crossings of the Oregon Trail in this area that was called Three Island Crossing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, have you been there?
0: I haven't been there. I drive to Utah quite frequently. And so I always see the signs for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And to give you sort of an idea, Glen's Ferry is really close to King's Cross, which is where Mm -hmm. Josie's Uh, Josie Kensler's story took place so this is the same general area that's uh, a couple years apart obviously but yeah so during back
2: in the 1843 to 1869 they used these three islands Mm -hmm. to cross the Oregon Trail and basically it was it was a super treacherous thing to do you know you had to there were a lot of deaths, and mm-hmm. well, the river was super summer. deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it's swift. It's the very swift. swift. Yeah, so you imagine you're on horseback. You have wagons mm-hmm. crossing this. Um, I actually found this journal from the first man who crossed it, William T. Newby, back in 1842, and he said the the river was low enough, and so they attempted to cross it. And basically, if you crossed it there, you it shortened your route to Oregon. It wasn't as as desertous Like it would be if you traveled (laughs) southern Idaho, you know, all the way to Fort Boise, the Mm -hmm. old Fort Boise. So he says, uh, first we drove over a part of the river 100 yards wide onto an island. Then over a northern branch 75 yards wide on a second island. Then we tied a string of wagons together by a chain in the ring of the lead cattle's yoke and made fast to the wagon of all horse and before and him led. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh it was hard to <laughs> that piece you just made
0: was kind of hilarious. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we carried as many as 15 wagons at one time. The water was 10 inches up the wagon beds in the deepest places. Oh my gosh. 10 inches up the w- the wagon beds like
0: yeah so that's yeah those things are almost underwater
2: exactly yeah so i mean there were so many fatalities it Mm -hmm. was it was a gamble do we cross here shorten this trip make it an easy leisurely thing Mm -hmm. or do we take the long road 500 miles to this uh, side of the old Fort Boise to cross near Parma, right? You know to cross. If and... you've ever
0: played the Oregon Trail computer game, which oh. by the way is available online, these are decisions you have to face all yes. the time. Yeah. I, by the way, just on a side note, which this episode is full of, played that one time and made it like three months, no, five months late, but no one died. Wow. I'm just saying it's possible.
2: I, I did. <laughs> you I should, you not. should
0: play it. It's fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I remember,
2: uh, like, I had somebody die, like, as we were leaving the main ground, and I was just like, I, nah, I can't do this. This is too hard.
0: I I was so uh, concerned about the these fake hypothetical people that like they'd be like, your daughter got sick with dysentery, and I'd be like, we're camping for three months, <laughs> but it's December, we're staying. <laughs> No one died. So good. We just made it really late with like very few supplies. <laughs> Crossing numbers took a really That's, long time.
2: Oh, I love that. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, yeah, so if you're interested in in coming there, there's a great it's it's now a state park, mm-hmm. three miles sta- mm-hmm. three mile island state park and it has this great interpretive center. And you know, in the eighties there were these reenactors who uh-huh. re they tried it themselves Oof. and they struggled. There was yeah. this great story of of like this pack mule who bucked off his, his rider and went back to the South Shore. And, you know, 15 of the riders of the 16 made it across. And then this mule just like, you know, exactly. uh-huh, like on the other side. And then he he actually didn't even use the islands. He found his own way across. Oh, so he just like little skated Pack mules yeah.
0: do, yeah. mule do what they want. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's great. <laughs> Finally, in 1869, this man named Gustavus Galen, uh, Gus Galen built a ferry to help travelers cross the river about a mile south of where the the city now stands and gust he was a he was a freight hauler he hauled huge wagons full of supplies between oregon and boise and uh he realized in 1869 that there was a need for people to cross and that all these deaths were happening all these different things so he's like I'm going to build a boat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to build a ferry. There and that was his ferry. gig. That's what he did. Yeah, so that's what the town is named after. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1880s, Glens Ferry becomes this important rail hub. And uh, by 1888, the town is platted. And, the, of course, the original town, it burns down twice in the 1890s. So most of those original buildings were destroyed. But uh developed you know, because of the railway system Mm -hmm. uh, and with irrigation and, and lumber, it, it's, Kind of developed into a, an important little city, mm-hmm. and it was basically filled up with Union Pacific employees mm-hmm. and people who worked the fields because mm-hmm. you know they were they worked symbiotically together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they had this important roundhouse that was built in Glens Ferry, so it allowed trains to turn around and okay. and, and go backwards or uh, stop and and be serviced and taken mm-hmm. care of. So Glens Ferry had a pretty interesting. History. I found on on that Union Pacific website this great story about this opera theater being constructed in 1914 in Glens Ferry. And vaudeville performers would stop Mm. in. They would take that Union Pacific, they'd stop in, and all these little Western towns, they'd stop in Glens Ferry. And if a train was going through during their performance, the plays would stop. They would just, everybody would stop. They would wait for the whistle to sound. And as soon as it would, everybody in the audience would stand up and, and start singing, I've been working on the railroad. Oh, my God. And then as soon as the, the train made it through the town, uh, the play would start right back up Listen, where it
0: I just think that life in the early 20th century sounds like... <laughs> Sounds like a scary time, but also sounds like such a fun time. Oh like gosh. everyone just sort of seems to be on the same page. Right. Like they know how to work really hard, but they also know how to play really hard. Mm-hmm. And that sounds so fun. Like yes. who would have ever thought that you needed to build an opera house right. of all things in <laughs> Glens Ferry, which <laughs> right. I, you know, like it's just a little town that I I've, I've never even been to it. I just mm. drive past it on my way to Utah. So that's oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I love those kind
2: of stories. So just like the majority of the town, Charles is working in Clens Ferry as a switchman for the mm-hmm. okay. railroad. Makes sense. And that's a that's a really dangerous job. I mm-hmm. mean, you're working really close to trains and mm-hmm. you're making sure the tracks are turned so mm-hmm. they can move and everything. Mm-hmm. And so he's actually, he leaves regularly and he's, you know, working at different rail yards and stuff. And so on August 9th, 1917, he returns home after about a month away and he drinks and he's intoxicated and he starts to brutally assault his wife and this attack i mean it's it's so bad the screams get so loud that neighbors who said that they regularly heard them quarreling they decided to call the police this time and the police arrive and she is is just beaten beaten up terribly so about seven o'clock he's arrested and taken to the the jail the glens ferry jail It's about three blocks from his house. And within two hours, he would escape.
0: How did he escape?
2: He sawed his way through the iron bars in his cell. With what? He had snuck in a saw.
0: What?
2: Yes, a hacksaw. And so he escapes. He returns to (sighs) his house and brutally stabs his wife (sighs) a bunch of times. But it wasn't
0: even her fault. Right. It wasn't her
2: right Ugh. so this is about nine thirty in the evening so he he escapes oh from the gosh. jail stabs his wife with a pocket knife a bunch of times a neighbor hears these brutal screams and runs over with a gun and that's where he discovers mrs sandusky and he calls the police they find out that charles is missing and they are on the lookout for him mrs sandusky is unconscious in the front yard with 22 stab wounds Ugh. across the throat breast head oh. and arms neighbors and, sorry
0: arms. he just did this because he was drunk and mad
2: i i believe so well th- i think there's a history of brutality so we'll Ugh. we'll get to that later in the story here yeah this this is not she's also seven months pregnant when no this happens with their last with their child sixth together. Yeah, or their fifth, their fifth. Their yeah fifth. yeah so Ugh. this is you know she survives all of this. She gets oh, beaten and stabbed 21 soul, times, dude. and she survives this oh whole thing. Gosh. Charles was seen running south to the outskirts of Glen Ferry towards the Snake River, and friends and neighbors testified you know, that they had seen them quarrel, they had seen all of this happen, but nobody thought it was necessary to intervene until that night. So this is a pretty, a pretty big thing that they witnessed. Um Sorry, she wasn't what year expected. is this? Uh, so this is 1917. Okay. Yeah, so no one expected her to survive. But after several weeks in the hospital, she survives, and two months later, they have their their last child. She she gives birth yeah. to their last child. Oh. Uh, so a posse of men search for Sandusky, and they turn up nothing. They don't they don't see him. He just disappears and they thought that maybe he was hiding in the city or in the hills nearby Um, the sheriff sent out a description to officers all over the west and offered a hundred dollar reward for his capture and that's that's a lot of money Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. for one of these guys and Mm -hmm. the description reveals that he had been arrested in douglas county colorado 1909 for a robbery he was sentenced there and served time there until 1912 so just a tiny bit more information than i could get from from his intake
0: wait did you sorry did you just say he was sentenced there until 1912?
2: from 1909 to 1912 in Colorado. yeah okay sorry two and a half years there yeah sorry and so this is his description sandusky is a railroad switchman age 35 height five feet six inches weight 135 pounds blue gray eyes sandy complexion smooth shaven may raise mustache which will be sandy pit scar and center of forehead about the size of a dime twitches mouth when talking great tobacco chewer is quarrelsome and boasts of his fighting ability he has served time in Colorado State Prison and been in jails all over the country there's a whole manhunt out for him and the sheriff believes that he had thrown himself into the Snake River and drowned I mean it's a it's a rapid river Over the next few weeks, over a thousand letters and cards arrive in the sheriff's office from as far as Detroit, Michigan, from people who claim that they saw Charles. After a grueling six months of searching, Charles was finally captured in El Paso, Texas, under the alias Floyd T. Lynn. Detectives were tipped off from a telegraph from Tucson, Arizona, stating that Sandusky was in their city. They captured him in front of the El Paso post office. And an Idaho sheriff sent extradition papers to Texas and, and collected Sandusky, who traveled without issue. He didn't cause any ruckus or anything. And that's when Charles revealed that after stabbing his wife, he ran to the Snake River and clung to a plank of wood that he had rowed to an island about two miles below Hammett. The island was surrounded by tall willows and wild rose bushes which was an ideal hiding place for him, for about three to four days before moving on. And then uh, after revealing the hiding place, a cattleman actually looking for his cattle discovered this little island and and where he had been sleeping. Then it's time for his trial. He's tried in Mountain Home, and while in the trial, he actually threatens everyone in the courtroom, warning that what he'd do to his family and onlookers if he was ever given liberty. Yes. What? He's found guilty of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder and sentenced to serve not less than seven nor more than 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He arrives on April 4th, 1918 at the prison. And during his incarceration, his wife is granted a divorce and she and the children move to Pocatello, Idaho. Yeah, they should. Yeah. And, you know, he's quarrelsome and boastful uh, all throughout his I don't time like here. him yeah so here's his his intake information he's received april 4th 1918 alias ft lynn county elmore sentenced 7 to 14 years age 33 born in missouri uh height five feet five inches complexion medium weight 127 pounds build slender size of boot six hair color brown eye color blue married with five children floyd lloyd bernice carlisle norma and parents were listed as living and he left his parents home at the age of 16 he grew up in the methodist church had an eighth grade education and was a moderate drinker in 1918 a year into his sentence his father dies the age of 52 or 53 sometime while he's incarcerated he's given the job i believe of replacing the cement in front of that territorial prison.
1: Okay. And
2: that's when I believe he put the permanent mark, May 1921, CCS into it. Mm-hmm. And the most convincing evidence I have comes from his Bertillon chart, which shows his tattoos. And besides the moles on his face and his back and a birthmark on his left buttock, Charles had a tattoo with three letters on his forearm. Any guesses?
0: I'm going to guess it's CCS. It's
2: CCS on his right forearm. Yeah. So actually, if you look at the Bertillon here, that it, even
0: looks like, yeah.
2: It looks very similar. Totally does. What the warden drew on this Brutillian looks just like what is well, written
0: on the floor. Well, and like, is do you think that's what it really, that C is, is what it really looked like? Or do you think that's just the way that the officer drew that C? It's, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because then, then that sort of matches that swirl right here mm-hmm. at the top of the two.
2: Yeah, it does. I know it's it's super similar. We'll post photos of yeah. it on the on our Facebook group, so please join our Facebook group. Uh Nice plug. So, he applies for parole several times through his incarceration. August of 1921, his sentence was commuted to seven years with good behavior allowance. I know. On January 10th, 1923, a model prisoner, Charles Sandusky, is pardoned early on good time with no write-ups on his file. Upon his release, he headed to Pocatello, where his ex-wife and children were living. Yes. The next day, Charles attempts to break into his ex-wife's home when he finds out that she is remarried and she has started a new family. His first of
0: all, good for her. Right. Second of all, how does he find out where she lives? Like just asking around town? Must.
2: Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. His 16-year-old son Floyd, the one that's named Uh after his, Uh his brother, heard the commotion, picks up a revolver and shoots his father, blows his father's nose off.
0: <laughs> what?
2: Yes. So Charles was attempting to break into that home, and so Floyd thought, you know what, this is. Did he know happen. it was his
0: dad, or did he just think it was like a, a someone I, breaking I, in?
2: I feel like he knew it was his dad.
0: Okay. So sorry. How how long was he in prison for? It
2: was about so 1917 to 1923.
0: So six years. Yeah. So Floyd would have been like ten mm-hmm. when his. So he would have been old enough to understand what exactly. had gone on. Yeah. Oh, that so he's
2: 16. Kid. Charles is rushed to the hospital where he spends a week in treatment. And leaving the hospital, he purchases a train ticket back to St. Joseph, Missouri to stay with his, his family. His mother is still alive. And January 19, 1923, he boards the train, unaware that his son Floyd was following close behind. Oh, my gosh. Floyd boards the train with a heavy caliber revolver in hand and malice towards his father and his heart. Charles had threatened to retaliate against the whole family, and Floyd wasn't going to let that happen. Oh. So he searched the train and spotted his bandaged-up father sitting next to another passenger. He raises the revolver and shoots his father five times in the chest. Oh. Charles died instantly, and Floyd laid his gun down. And he's taken to the county jail, where he expressed complete gratification before going to sleep. Floyd is never charged for the murderer's oh. father. Yeah, they the jury actually deem the teenager's action self defense. And that is the life times and death of Charles Cleveland Sandusky. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and Floyd, yeah, he I mean I can't say I blame him. Like, Mm -hmm. what would you do if you pro I mean he was maybe asleep, but like probably watched your father stab your mother twenty two times. Right, right. While she's seven months pregnant.
2: And he's probably gone a lot of the time and when he does come home he's probably just evil I mean, like abusing yeah. his mother so so his uh, only memories probably of his father is is pure abuse oh and, and all of this so i think i think he saw the potential of something worse happening to his whole family and to protect them oh. which the jury saw fit as self-defense yeah. to protect them he he takes takes oh, his father's life and floyd would actually served time at this institution about 10 years later in the 1930s for for a short time and he he got into a bit of trouble himself what was it uh, was it for a violent
0: crime or like a forgery sort of exactly yeah interesting
2: it's a rough story it's a it's a long one uh
0: nice job and
2: you know his poet she would live until i think she in, into her 80s and oh, she would be good. she married twice or her second husband uh passed away and then she married oh. a, a, and she a had third more husband. kids so and she did have more kids wow. yeah so she had oh, a long good uh, I'm so hopefully glad. good life yeah, yeah i really hope that 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 whole family oh, they you deserve
0: know, better than that
2: absolutely yes. yeah and and floyd and actually a lot of the family lived Pretty, pretty good long lives, and I found like all the marriage records of his his daughters and, oh. and his sons, and yeah.
0: So that's Honestly, Charles looks Sandusky, like a
2: bad guy. Yeah,
0: I don't, I don't like him. I'm, okay. with yeah. I'm with you there. I'm with
2: you there. Anyone like who him. I don't know.
0: I- uh. I, like, I actually, I went camping this weekend and you know when you're camping and you just start thinking about like weird stuff. <laughs> and my friend that was with me asked, you know, would it be worse to be like killed or attacked by someone you know or someone like a total stranger? And I think it would be worse to be attacked or killed by someone that you know because what that means is they have some major rage, some major problem with you as a person. Mm-hmm. They are willing to take your life like, if it's a stranger, like, they don't know you. This is just, like, a convenience thing, a thrill thing, which not that that makes that any better. Yeah. But just, I'm um, just, for me as a person, I would hate the idea that someone I knew was, like, willing to take my life. And yeah. especially a husband, a uh-huh. spouse. Yeah. The head I, of the household. Yeah. Like, that's like, how he's described in all these uh, things. Like, ugh. Yeah. I'm so glad she lived. I'm so glad the yeah. family got away from it. I don't want to say I ever condone killing, but he mm-hmm. sort of deserved it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wow. Right. I mean.
2: I know. This story, like, this all spurred from a fourth grader going, what does the CCS mean? And <laughs> when I started uncovering the story, it it's one of those ones that will always stick with me. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, man.
0: Yeah, those stories that just make your like jaw drop open. And yeah, you're just like I'm sorry, what did I just read?
2: Excuse me. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Wow. Well, per usual, great job, Anthony. Oh, thanks, Guy. It was a it was a rough one. Yeah, like th- that's I,
2: rough. I did this research, you know, about a year ago when this when this happened. So uh-huh. this has kind of been brewing inside me for a really long time. <laughs> so to like finally release it, so that everybody else has to think about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I apologize. I, no I'll be thinking about it. Also. Yeah, yeah. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love, too
2: please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there.
0: All right, well, uh, let's try to lighten things up a little bit. There's, I mean... Again, her um, the one I'm doing is not as funny as um as like Sam Stevens was after Josie's, but it does have a bit of a happier ending. Oh, good. So oh, um, yes, yes, please, yeah. thank you. <laughs> okay. So my inmate today, her name is Hannah Folden. She's number three two eight one. So uh, as I said, she was in for violation of prohibition laws, and uh, I'll get a little bit into prohibition. You know, most of us, I think, have an idea of what prohibition is. And I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than just like we don't like alcohol. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll just do a really brief overview of that. So let's see. So sources. I've got her inmate file again, per usual. Ancestry.com, as I think I said at the top of the show, is chock full of her records, which I didn't originally have access to. They're very exciting. I found out so much cool stuff, uh, and I'll, I'll get into that. And I already told Anthony one of the, the things I found out that was different, so he won't be surprised by that. But anyway, <laughs> I did use Wikipedia a little bit, but I checked sources. Please check sources if you use Wikipedia. For the, mm-hmm. for the most part, people do a pretty good job of citing. They're usually legit sources, but... Do check that. Or just um, go to the sources and mm-hmm. read the sources yourself. So sometimes, that's... though, that's hard because they're, like, books you have to check out from the... I'm lazy is what oh. it comes down to. <laughs> Anthony, listen, I don't work as hard as you. Oh. Um, I also... So there's lots of sources online about Prohibition. I just picked one kind of at random that seemed good. It's u-s-history.com. Just oh. an article on Prohibition. Nice. It seemed like a, a place where, like, students, like, high school students or whatever could go to get, like, an overview. That's all I needed, so... yeah. I also found a really great article about prohibition in Idaho. It's called Distilled, A History of Idaho's Alcohol Laws by Samantha Wright of Boise State Public Radio. So yeah. thank you to her for yeah. that. Um, it was really, I, just, I found that article before. It's actually really, it's a really, really good article. So hannah folden was born on july 4th 1875 to august and matilda hilden so she was almost exactly born on america's birthday almost heard on its 99th birthday actually wow. but not that it matters because her intake forms say that she was born in sweden so she doesn't care oh. about the fourth of july however census marriage and her death records state that she was actually born in kemi finland um, which is a little bit different. They're close to one another. Here's why there may have been a little bit of confusion. I looked this up. So Kemi, Finland is a town in the Bothnian Bay of Finland, which is less than 30 kilometers to the Swedish border. So they're pretty close. Mm. So she may have been born in Finland, maybe lived in Sweden, or maybe they just were so close that she, you know, they the the borders may not have been quite as solid. Well, that's not true, actually. I don't know anything about Scandinavian history so I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like I do yeah. um, but they were really close so mm-hmm. may have been interchangeable in her mind I don't know she may have been an only child. I couldn't find evidence of siblings, but if I remember correctly, the nearest of kin that she listed was not a name that I had seen before. I think it was a female name uh, with a different last name. That may have been a sibling. It may have been a child. Um, I couldn't quite tell which that was. So she may have been the only child, but like I said, I couldn't find any evidence. Mm-hmm. Her father died in 1887 in Sweden or Finland. There is no official immigration date or immigration date document that I could find, but according to the 1900 census record I found of her, it actually states that they immigrated in 1890. Mm -hmm. So, a couple years after her father died, which would make sense. It's possible that, you know, her mother wanted to have a better life, Mm -hmm. Um, and so they came over in 1890. The intake form states that their port of entry was through Quebec, Canada. They then settled in the Midwest, which was a popular area for Scandinavians. You know, we talk about the the accent out there, and Mm -hmm. I'm also a massive Golden Girls fan. Rose is from St. Olaf, minnesota (laughs) um and so yeah so they settle in the midwest uh which you know there's lots of people there uh like them so uh that makes sense the next record i found of her is on november 5th 1892 hannah marries a man named matthias rainey probably r-e-i-n-i he's another finnish immigrant they get married in calumet michigan Mm -hmm. Now Kelly Michigan, is part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It's actually above Wisconsin. And so when I looked this up on a mm-hmm. map, I was like, that looks like it's on Wisconsin, but because I didn't know that that that, that portion of Michigan yeah. was up buttressed against Wisconsin. So mm-hmm. learn new stuff every day. Hannah and Matthias went up having three children Arthur William, Hannah, or other records call her. I know H E I N O. I tried to look up that name. It's mm-hmm. a ger- mostly a German masculine name. Um, so I don't know if that's correct. You know, these census records, their names vary so much. Mm-hmm. And then their last daughter, her name was Hattie. Matthias was a miner by trade, um, probably a copper miner. Houghton or Houghton County—I don't know how to pronounce the G H sometimes—in Michigan uh, was actually part of Michigan's copper country. Ton of ton of copper coming out of that area, so he was probably a copper miner. Mining, as we know, in the early 20th century is pretty dangerous. Yes. So, Matthias, Lucrative. L- yeah, lucrative, but, dangerous. but very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So he probably died sometime between 1900 and 1910. I couldn't find a death record. I couldn't find a divorce record. Um, but he sort of disappears from the records mm-hmm. uh, between those years. And so I would assume if he was alive, we would have found maybe some other marriage records. Mm-hmm. Um, something like that. And so I'm assuming that he died. Could be a wrong assumption. This is what's hard about these early Mm. inmates as if you know they're not listed in in those records they're just they're just gone now i know that he is not around by 1910 because in the 1910 census she is married to a man named james folden actually in the 1910 census it's listed as golden um james is a norwegian immigrant and they are living in sandpoint idaho it states that they had been married for four years, meaning they got married in 1906. However, their official marriage certificate is from
1: 1921.
0: Oh. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Uh. So probably what happens, and this is very common in early, early years, um, and actually through the 50s, is they probably got in what's called a common law marriage in 1906. Mm -hmm. common law marriages for those of you who don't know are marriages that there's basically no official marriage ceremony but parties agree to live together basically as man and wife Mm -hmm. that is a way that they can participate in sexual relations without legal repercussions Mm -hmm. um you know they they kind of have to maintain marital responsibilities so basically the men go out and work the women Mm homemake, and it, it, it's really interesting, most of the time all the couple have to say, they just have to say out loud that like, we're in a common law marriage and like boom, they're married. Yeah. It's so legally binding that they actually have to get an official legal divorce in order f- to divorce. It's such a weird interesting loophole. I have Mm -hmm. not figured it out because there's lots of uh, women inmates and probably male inmates as well who are in common law marriages. I have such a hard time figuring it out. Mm -hmm. There are Common law marriages are actually legal still in eight states. Colorado, Iowa, Kansas, Montana, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Texas, Utah and also in the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C. But be careful because common law marriages can be used to prosecute on bigamy charges. So just because... You know, if you say in any of those states, we are married, and then you legally marry someone else, you can Mm -hmm. be brought up on bigamy charges. So if you want to get into a common law marriage, I imagine those are much less common these days because Mm -hmm. there is a lot of just, you know, cohabitating without marriage, and that's Great.
2: What what are the benefits like?
0: Yeah, a lot of times. And this is actually I found this. There's this great article that I didn't include a lot about, but it's it's from a 1998 Yale Law Journal mm -hmm. uh, article. And it's called Governing Through Contract Common Law Marriage in the 19th Century by Ariella R. Dubler. And they sh- they talk about um, kind of what the benefits are of this, and and a lot of times, uh, especially for women, this was a really useful tactic because if their husbands died, they could collect insurance, they could get any sort of benefits that mm-hmm. a, a legally married wife could get. Um, so they do get, they basically get everything that an officially married couple mm-hmm. could get. They just didn't have that official wedding ceremony. It is considered a legal contract uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries.
2: Would would people like if their families didn't approve Mm -hmm. of of a marriage? Would that be like a reason to be common law married where...
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be. It also could be a way to um, make a childbirth legitimate. Mm-hmm. Is saying like right. you know they yeah. didn't get because you know illegitimacy in in the late nineteenth early twentieth century is highly frowned upon. Mm-hmm. I always hate including that in in the bios that I write because there are a lot of of children that they write that are illegitimate. Which I hate using that phrase. They're not illegitimate. They just. You know, their parents weren't married, mm-hmm. but that was a problem back then. And so this was a way of if for whatever reason you got pregnant before you were married, you could just, you know, say, oh, we're married. Yeah. And then you're all of a sudden your child is quote unquote legitimate. That's
1: great. Yeah. yeah
0: so common law marriages are super interesting. I Like I said, I don't fully understand them, but they, there are eight states where you can still do it. Idaho is not one of them, yeah. but but you can still do it. If you're interested, head to any of those states.
2: I was going to say, I, I didn't get married until... Our ten-year anniversary uh-huh. of being together, uh-huh. so we could have been easily considered yeah. common right. law. Right, and a that's years. Uh, that
0: is the difference in today's stuff. Is you do mm. you have to be, I think, living together for seven years, mm-hmm. and I don't even think at that point you necessarily even have to say it. You could technically say that you're in a common law marriage if it's been seven years or longer. Wow, um, okay. that wasn't the case back then. I think you right. could be living together for like a day and be like, "Hey, we're married," and that's it. Um, <laughs> but but now, yeah, it usually takes about seven years for that to 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 become in effect. So yeah, I mean, you and Becky may have been common law married and didn't even know it, yeah. except not in the state. Yeah, you would have had to be state. in Utah or Texas yeah. or Montana. <laughs> Montana. All right, so that was a that was a wormhole I went down. It was common law marriage. So uh, James and and Hannah end up having two kids of their own: Edwin, James, and Helen. They also had another son. His name was Roy, but in 1912 he was uh, about a year old. He died of pneumonia. Uh, which is really sad. So she had six children altogether, but uh, did have one die early. Now, as I mentioned, they were officially married. They were married in Thompson Falls, Montana on September 19th, 1921. They did eventually divorce. Um, I couldn't find any document of it, but a lot of times those early divorce documents aren't available on Ancestry. I think in Idaho, they don't even start until like the 1950s. But they would have had to officially get I mean, they were officially married at this point. But even if they hadn't, they would have had to go through the courts to get divorced. Um, and I know he didn't die because he his death date is not until 1948. I found oh, his death yeah. certificate. We know that it's she didn't she wasn't widowed by him. Mm-hmm. Now, after during their separation, maybe after their divorce, Hannah begins living with a man named Walter W. Brackett. He was a World War One veteran. Now keep this in mind for later. Keep this name in mind. He he will come up here in a little bit. Now, as I said, Hannah was arrested for violation of prohibition laws. Now, here's my little, like, five-minute prohibition overview. This is a really simplified overview of prohibition, so I'm sure I'm missing lots of stuff, but we'll do what we can. So, prohibition was passed in, night, or ratified, I should say, in 1920. It's the 18th Amendment. There's lots of intricacies leading up to this act, as I said. Basically, in the early 19th century, temperance societies, basically what that meant like tempering alcohol consumption. Temperance societies begin popping up all over the country. Because it's really, you know, it's really widely believed that alcoholism leads to a lot of societal problems, it leads to spousal abuse, mm-hmm. and it, is, it eventually leads to widespread poverty. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what these temperance societies are trying to stop. Uh, during the Civil War, there are bigger things on, on the political plates, political minds of people, so temperance societies sort of take a back seat. But after the Civil War and Reconstruction, they really ramp up again. These lead to organizations like the Anti-Saloon League in 1893. And these smaller groups start to focus on ridding society of alcohol at the local level. And this is really where we're going to start our, our examination of prohibition in Idaho. So around the 1880s, the Women Christians Temperance Union, the WCTU, this is probably the biggest temperance union, uh, temperance organization around the country. Just women, Christian women banding together mm. to rid you know their societies of alcohol their their communities of alcohol so the WCTU they pop up in Lewiston and Boise and then that is followed by local anti-saloon league chapters in both places in 1907 the anti-saloon league manages to get a measure on the ballot called the Sabbath law in Idaho and it passes in 1907 making the sale of alcohol on Sunday illegal mm-hmm. it's not you know it's a start again it's a first these step. yeah these are these are christians so Sundays are those sacred days. You don't do anything. You know, you're not supposed to on Sunday. And now that includes buying and selling alcohol. Mm -hmm. Then eight years later in 1915, Idaho elects the state's only Jewish governor. And he was actually the only the second Jewish governor in the country at the time. His name is Moses Alexander, which is one of my favorite names other than Barzilla J. Clark. I've talked about this before. I love that name so much. Moses Alexander, he runs on a prohibition platform. And once elected, this becomes one of his first major points, one of his first major changes of his uh, gubernatorial career. So a constitutional amendment is passed in the state of Idaho in 1916, outlying all sales of alcohol. Prohibition starts in Idaho in 1916. It passed by 71%. 71% of Idaho voters voted to outlaw the sale of alcohol that's how big of an issue this was mm-hmm. um right in in the late and actually this is kind of right before world war one and then around the country things really got ramped yeah. up during and after
2: mm-hmm. uh world war one it shows how effective that the local mm-hmm. idaho chapter of the yeah women's christian Champions, uh
0: yeah the wctu yeah. And, the, and the anti-saloon league absolutely and and you know but really, I think it has a lot to do with um, the upper and middle class women, mm-hmm. uh, because these are the women who are the ones who ha- kind of have the most say in society. The lower class women who are probably honestly the ones who are dealing most like most often with their husbands mm-hmm. coming home drunk and being drunk and beating their wives. They're and, the ones who have to deal with their it. paychecks, but they're also not listened like to yeah. because they're poor. Mm-hmm. So it's the the middle and upper class women think it's their duty to help these, like, poor, lower-class people. They're the ones who really, I think, have a a big, big say in this.
2: Do you know what kind of things that they did? Would they hold, like, rallies or, like, Um, meetings? I think
0: petitions, they would hold meetings. Uh Um, I think they're also going to be passing stuff out Uh on the streets, you know, and and they have, uh, frankly— I had a history professor who called it pillow talk. They had a voice in their husbands' ears. Right. Their husbands are the ones who are who have this. Again, they they're upper and middle class, so mm-hmm. they have the say. They oftentimes are the lawmakers themselves, or they're buddies with the lawmakers. And so they, you know, when they're you know when you're laying in bed and you're falling asleep and you're talking about whatever, you say like, listen, I saw Mrs. Mrs. Sandusky the other day, and I'll tell you what, her husband just is, you know, he's beating her all the time, mm-hmm. and I know it's because of alcohol. I just think we need to we need to really help her out and Mm -hmm. and this is the way to do it and and so women aren't given enough credit for having a say in uh you know, women at this time uh, were allowed to vote in Idaho, uh, but uh, in 1916, that had not been passed in the country yet. Yeah. You know, that's not going to come for another two or three years.
2: Right. We'll, we'll post the photo of Moses with this yeah. this, this league. And, and
0: interestingly, there yeah. is a woman. It's as, I think he's signing the bill into effect. <laughs> exactly, and it's yeah. all men except one woman right next to him. And I don't know who it is. All the pictures, because mm-hmm. all, the, all the articles about Prohibition in Idaho use this picture. It's the only one oh, we have. Yeah. And they don't say who that woman is. I don't know if she's maybe a head of the WCTU or the Anti-Saloon League, if it's his wife or his daughter, Mm -hmm. basically a political prop to say, you know, like, look at what we're doing for the people. She's on my side. But that's kind of, you know, 1916 is when this starts. The 18th Amendment prohibiting all sale of alcohol across the nation is passed, ratified, and put into effect on January 16th, 1920. So Idaho outlaws it four whole years before before the rest of the nation. So bootlegging or making and selling your own alcohol becomes mm-hmm. huge because people still want alcohol. This Alcohol has been around since almost the beginning of time. This is not anything new. People like it. You know, you know what? What are you gonna do? And so jails also start to fill up with people violating prohibition laws. So this is where Hannah comes in. She was first convicted for having intoxicating liquor in her possession on October seventeenth, nineteen twenty one, in Sandpoint. Now I didn't mention this before. Sandpoint is north of Coeur d'Alene. It's about a few hours from the Canadian border. It's one of our. It's actually the county seat of Bonner County. It's one of our northernmost and largest uh, cities. Just on the boundary county, mm-hmm. which is which is called Boundary. Tiny. Yeah. (laughs) called Boundary County because it's on the boundary of Mm -hmm. the US and Canada so um, Hannah for this first conviction probably just spent some time in the Bonner County Jail or paid some kind of restitution for her crime this doesn't stop her she likes alcohol I always find that Europeans often tend to be in for prohibition and this is probably because in Europe they don't have that much problem with alcohol so this they're used to it they like it and so having this prohibition that you know you you don't want to stop you know who doesn't like alcohol so um she is quote caught with the goods after numerous complaints in September 1922 she actually pleads not guilty she pled not guilty to the first one as well I think I put in my bio that she was caught after hiding it in her house I couldn't find where I found that information the first time. I'm always so skeptical of these early bios that I wrote because I'm like, where did I get that information? But regardless, she is caught the second time. She pleads not guilty. The jury convicts her of multiple infractions of prohibition laws, and she is sentenced to 1 to 24 months at the Idaho State Penitentiary here's what some prison officials say about her they say quote she is a persistent violator of liquor laws regards them as puritanical blue laws more honored in the breach than in the observance so say most of us which is an interesting (laughs) statement because what he's saying is yeah I agree with her like we are honoring this law by breaking it much more than we are by obeying it
2: and who who said that so
0: this is um, you know on those I couldn't I didn't have a picture of the front side of the sheet where it says what they are so there's like the prosecuting a prosecuting attorney or the judge and gotcha. on the back it'll say like do they have criminal tendencies mm-hmm. and like describe their crime and describe their associates it's one of those oh. but i don't have the front side where it says what he is so it's oh. either a prison official or a prosecuting attorney or, the, or a yeah, judge yeah which is so interesting like
1: oh but this gosh. kind of
0: gives you an idea of how much people really started to dislike mm-hmm. this law it's just putting a lot of people in jail unnecessarily it's filling up jails mm-hmm. and it's all just so that people don't get drunk you know yeah yeah another uh this is actually on the same form it says that she's okay on all tendencies but illicit cohabitation and bootlegging which is how we know she was living with walter before she came into the prison mm. um and then overall he the same official says she pays all bills promptly has raised her family carefully is a hard worker and persistent bootlegger so he says like overall she's a good lady she's yeah. just is breaking laws. She's and a she's, contributing yeah, member of society. Like she, I love that it says she raised her family carefully. She's got these five kids. Mm-hmm. She's trying to make sure that they do, do right. Um, but she, you know, she likes alcohol and, you know, who could blame her? <laughs> so she appeals her conviction to the Supreme Court, but the, they sustain the original conviction on the grounds that there were no reversible errors in her trial, which is a lot of times how things get reversed. Um, mm-hmm. That's how, you know, Josie and Alfred Friel's got as because it got reversed is because they said you know like we don't even know that the crime happened in elmore county so we shouldn't have been prosecuting them there um those sort of things that you know there's an error or like there was a podcast i was listening to the other day where they said that a, a thing got overturned because the the jury was given the wrong instructions about what crime they could convict her on yeah. um so it's stuff like that there's just they said there weren't any reversible errors that they could uh So her conviction was upheld. She entered the women's ward on June 24th, 1923. The day after she arrives, the prison physician takes a look at her and he says some not very nice things about her. Mm. So she is 5'5", 223 pounds, and he states that she, quote, was very fat and stout, like a sack of feathers tied in the middle. Oh. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Whoa. And
0: then he says that the arches of her feet were broken from excessive weight. Oh, my. Listen, 223 is a little bit larger than average. It's not that heavy, especially for a 5'5 woman. Like, she's not, it's not like she's super short and really big. I mean, she's 48 years old when she comes into the prison. She's had six kids. She's just like a stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. mm, Arches of her feet were broken from excessive weight. She's not that heavy.
2: No, that description. Yeah. Like a sack of...
0: Like a sack of feathers tied in the middle. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a a little rough. I mean, I guess if her arches of her feet were truly broken, uh, then that is a way to identify her if she also could have just naturally had like small arches. Mm -hmm. Like it's not unheard of. Right. (laughs) But okay, prison physician. So by July, Hannah is already asking for a reprieve of her sentence. And she is basically, she's granted it. There's one condition, the condition of her reprieve is that she would go and care for Walter Brackett, with whom she'd been living, and this is because he had contracted tuberculosis in France, and he needed full-time care. She was caring for him before she came into the prison, using a lot of her own money to care for him, pretty much putting all of her time and effort. By this time, most of her kids are fully grown. Her last two kids are in their late teens, early 20s, so she is really, you know, caring for him, and he needs help. And so, the the parole board agrees. They give her this reprieve on this condition. So, they say if he if there ever comes a point where he gets better or doesn't need her, her help anymore, that she would come back to the penitentiary to finish out her sentence. She had to write the governor of Idaho, who at this point his name was Charles Seymour. She had to write him every 30 days detailing the physical condition of Walter, which is the way that they know if he's getting better or not, which... If there's no one checking on him, I would just be like, oh, he's not better yet, but anyway. She also had to stay out of Bonner County, likely until she is, is released from her conditional parole or, or pardoned. So what she does is she pays $300 to the state for any expenses occurred if she returns. Basically, she says, here's $300. If you have to bring me back, just use that money. This, wow. is, this is what I looked up. Do you want to guess? Do you want to guess how much money this is in 2019?
2: That's probably... $1,600?
0: It is $4,500 in 2019. This is why I was like, um, what?
2: Oh, my
0: God. That's so much money. Whoa. I don't know how she has that much money i mean i don't know if maybe when matthias died if they had quite a bit of money from that and if she got some sort of if he died on the job she probably would have gotten some kind of collection maybe from the company could have had insurance out on him Uh, it could be that that james folden pays you know for the kids Mm -hmm. some sort of child support i don't know how she has this much money and she's talked about that she's used a ton of money to take care of walter Mm -hmm. 45 she pays Straight up, writes him a check for $300 and says, wow. here, in case I ever come back. I don't know if she ever got that money back. Because, um, spoiler alert, she does not come back. Mm-hmm. So, pays this 300 slash $4,500. I can't. That's I can't even think money. about that. Wow. She leaves the penitentiary on August 2nd, 1923. She served one month and nine days. Barely her minimum sentence she takes walter down to phoenix arizona probably because of the heat uh, a lot of the early doctors said that you should go to tropical places warmer places that's going to be better for your tuberculosis than uh than a you know winter is fall and winter's coming it's cold uh, that's going to restrict their ability to breathe cuz it's going to uh, you know restrict those your lungs and things like that so she goes down to arizona cares for him after her reprieve officials note that she is truly devoting her time effort and money to caring for walter so she is officially pardoned on july 2nd 1925 probably after her pardon she can return to idaho her kids were still at least her youngest kids were still in the state as i said they were young adults by this time so you know they didn't need her to take care of them but her kids are still here so on october 5th 1925 She marries Walter W. Brackett in Bonner County. Uh, They lived in Sandpoint. Now, Walter died probably from complications of tuberculosis on November 13th, 1927. So they did get two full years to be together, not including the time that they were living together before. So they were probably together for, you know, a good half a decade or so. Mm. Then in the 1930 census, Hannah is living in Sandpoint with Edward and Helen, her two youngest kids. And as I said, they're in their early 20s. She died on July 17th, 1933 at the age of 58 from a cerebral hemorrhage, which is probably the end result of what's called arteriosclerosis, which is a disease that causes hardening of your arteries, especially as you get older. That makes sense. She is buried in Lakeview Cemetery in Sandpoint as Hannah Brackett. So oh. she kept uh, his last name. I think she loved him a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did have kind of that mutual, you know, she took care of him. But I think she genuinely loved him. Sadly, she did not get to see the end of Prohibition. Um, oh, the 21st yeah. Amendment, which appealed Prohibition, it was passed and ratified on December 5th, 1933. Oh. So she died about five months before the end of prohibition uh here's a fun fact i didn't know this utah was the last state's vote that ne- that was needed to help uh, officially repeal the 18th amendment which is interesting you wouldn't think that uh, i read that the lds church was very much trying to to influence the the politicians to mm-hmm. not uh ratify the 21st amendment but they did so yeah. uh go utah I do want to say that the reason I picked her is because I couldn't decide if I wanted to do a prohibition violator or an adulterer because we do have quite a few adulterers in here. And I asked my friend what she wanted to hear and she wanted to hear about the prohibition and she is from Utah, so.
2: Shout out.
0: Shout out, Shell that's for you. So yeah, that is that is Hannah Folden, uh, one of our uh, actually only two uh, prohibition violators, women anyway. I'm sure there were
2: lots of oh, men. Oh, there were so many. Lots yeah. and
0: lots of men, but uh, but those were one of our that's one of our two women, uh, Hannah Folden.
2: Nice work, Sky. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. She looks fun. She, yeah, I don't she
0: know. Just, she just is a little little Finnish Scandinavian old lady. Yeah. She's not that old. She's only 48. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has young, not young kids, but she's got kids and she's probably a grandma at this point. Her, cause her, I think her oldest was born in 1893. So yeah. by, you know, 1923, he's in his thirties. So mm. she's probably, she probably is a grandma and yeah. she's just, you know, living our life. Let's just live in the immigrant life. She was a naturalized, uh, US citizen oh, okay. by the 1930s, I believe mm-hmm. so. Dang. There you go. All right. Not, well, not quite as exciting. Oh yeah. But. Uh,
2: or brutal and. Yeah. A yeah, little,
0: little happier.
2: Yeah, yeah. Her taking care of of this World War One veteran, mm-hmm. like that's that's a sweet. I know it's kind of sweet. sweet. Huh? And then the parole board, like being. Mm-hmm seeing how pivotal she is to his health and his life
0: yeah because i thought that was really interesting because in a lot of the the women later women that i'm looking at people will write in and say like listen i really need her back she needs to care for her kids we're mm -hmm. having this problem and that problem and the warden says like listen i really want to help you but she has to serve her minimum sentence and usually the minimum sentence is 18 months Mm -hmm. this is earlier this is the 1920s and she did serve her minimum sentence Mm -hmm. so Yeah, it is really kind of interesting that the the parole board was so willing. And I think, I mean, I think people as it has that one where he's where the prison official says, like, so say we all. Right. I think they realize this is a dumb charge. Like no one. I think I read. It's funny because I read after I couldn't find it after I read it. But I thought I read that like 60 percent of Idahoans wanted to repeal Mm -hmm. the 18th Amendment after by 1933. And so. I think even just off the bat, people were like, this was a bad idea. It just, it's, it's very much that, that thing where when you outlaw something, it doesn't make it go away. Mm-hmm. It makes it backdoor and it makes it dangerous. That's it. And oh, the
2: the amount of deaths mm-hmm. that occurred because yeah, of from
0: bathtub gin and oh, like, just yeah. people don't know how to make alcohol mm-hmm. the right way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah like that's that's a serious problem and so i think that's why i think fdr it was his idea to to make this new amendment the 21st amendment is the only amendment that repeals another amendment yeah so yeah it's a good one yeah (laughs) sorry that was probably more history than than like her but this actually prohibition the 1920s the gilded age and and progressive era like my favorite eras to study in school so i'm very interested in all of that
2: very good. All right, Sky. So, nice
0: work. So tune in next week to find out who we're who we're
2: talking about. Yeah. All right. We'll do your own time. Do your own number. See you next week. Mm. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywallsgmail.com. At